Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is April 16, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading of Plato's Lesser Hippias, also called Hippias Minor, and these are posted on the shared drive link to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on any of these or the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So the subject of today's reading is lying. The dialogue is between Socrates and the sophist Hippias, whom we met back in December when we read The Greater Hippias, and who also played a role in the Protagoras that we just finished reading. Today's reading asks us to consider whether the truth-teller and the liar are two distinct people. Surprisingly, Socrates declares that there is no case in which they are different people, and that the power to lie is exercised by the truthful. But then he wavers, at one point becoming lightheaded about the distinction, and this wavering might seem unclear to us. Is it because the line between true and false is somehow blurry from the perspective of either the speaker or the listener? Before we begin our discussion on the subject of lying, a bit of background might first be helpful, firstly on the character of Hippias himself. We probably all know people who, like Hippias, are boastful, conceited, and do not know the limits of their knowledge. We had a fantastic discussion on Hippias in December. I'd encourage everyone to listen to it and revisit the greater Hippias, because as I discovered, the two dialogues are not separate and distinct, but really two chapters of the same story. Hippias, unlike his sophist counterpart Protagoras, is portrayed as buffoonish and lacking in wisdom, particularly in his inability to distinguish between cause and effect. We can recall Socrates' statement in the Phaedo, and from our own experience, that everything comes to be from a cause. But in the greater Hippias, the sophist was unable to explain the difference between the form of the fine and the physical things that become fine by cause of the fine itself. Hippias, we observed, does not understand the order of cause and effect in time. Hippias places value only on the physically observable, not understanding the timeless nature by which we characterize those observable things and the role of reason as a cause. So our December discussion was particularly timely, occurring just as the phenomenon of generative artificial intelligence gripped the world with the introduction of ChatGPT. Does ChatGPT have knowledge of truth and falsehood based on the way that it is trained by the weighting of probabilities? Do the machine's trainers know the truth? One participant provided an example in which the machine clearly did not understand our physical limitations in time when it dispensed advice on how to stop a baby from crying. Since then, ChatGPT and image-generating AI applications like DALI have exploded into the global conscience, sparking a vigorous debate now underway about how the technology should be used and regulated. In fact, a few weeks ago, the Italian government banned ChatGPT, which is a sign of the serious concerns that exist over the effects of AI on our knowledge of truth and falsehood. So on the cover page of today's notes, I've placed a reminder of what Socrates said about the divided line of knowledge from 509D to 511B of the Republic, which I think could also be helpful background for our discussion today. It recalls the distinction Plato made at 28A of the Timaeus between the continually changing realm of becoming that is accessible to the five physical senses 
and the separate yet connected realm of being, which is accessible only to the mind and its sense of reason. In the realm of becoming, everything is in motion and therefore subject to constant change. And modern physics has shown that time, in the becoming of things, is subject to the second law of thermodynamics and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, with everything physical beginning in a state of maximum order and ending in maximum disorder. The realm of being, however, is eternal and changeless, and therefore not subject to increase or decrease over time. It is the realm of being where the forms reside, grasped by the mind. I think particularly striking in the Republic's discussion of the divided line of knowledge is the soul's division of the intelligible realm of being into two parts. In one part, the soul investigates not from first principle, but from hypothesis, using as images the things that came into being before. And in the other part, the soul dispenses with the images and investigates instead by first principle using dialectic. Biologically combining these two parts, the soul then can make a reasoned unity, to borrow a term from a term used in the Phaedrus, and arrive at truth and knowledge. Perhaps then a conclusion we encountered in Plato's dialogue, the Cratylus, that wisdom is knowledge of motion, makes logical sense. So in today's reading, does Hippias display wisdom about the nature of truth? For that matter, we see both Socrates and Hippias lying in this dialogue, the difference being that Socrates lies voluntarily, while the lies of Hippias are involuntary. I thought we could begin our dialogue today by reading the passage from 366d to 367d, in which Socrates attaches the power to lie to the purported truth-teller. And so here, I, um, I don't know if we would have a volunteer to help read this section. We have two parts, Socrates and Hippias, or I can do both. But why didn't I do both? So this is from 366D to 367D. Socrates says, Are you then merely wisest and most powerful, or are you also best in these things in which you are the most powerful and wisest, that is, in arithmetic? Hippias says, Best also for sure, Socrates. Socrates says, Then would you tell the truth most powerfully about these things? I think so. But what about falsehoods about these same things? Please answer with the same nobility and grandeur you showed before, Hippias. If someone were to ask what three times 700 is, could you lie the best, always consistently say falsehoods about these things, if you wish to lie and never to tell the truth? Or would one who is ignorant of calculations have more power than you to lie if he wished to? Don't you think the ignorant person would often involuntarily tell the truth when he wished to say falsehoods, if it so happened, because he didn't know? Whereas you, the wise person, if you should wish to lie, would always consistently lie. Yes, it is just as you say. It's the liar then, a liar about other things, but not about number. He wouldn't lie about numbers. But yes, by Zeus, about numbers too. So we should also maintain this, Hippias, that there is such a person as a liar about calculation and number. Yes. Who would this person be? Mustn't he have the power to lie, as you just now agreed, if he is going to be a liar? If you remember, you said that one who did not have the power to lie could never become a liar. I remember I said that. And were you not just now shown to have the most power to lie about calculations? Yes, I said that too. Then the same person has the most power to say falsehoods and to tell the truth about calculations. And this person is the one who is good with regard to these things, the arithmetician. Yes. Then who becomes a liar about calculations, Hippias, other than the good person? For the same person is also powerful and truthful as well. Apparently. Do you see then that the same person is both a liar and truthful about these things, 
and the truthful person is no better than the liar, for indeed he is the same person, and the two are not complete opposites, as you just suppose now. So that was that section and the idea that I guess to be able to lie is first to know the truth. And then we'll get later into the question of lying voluntarily and involuntarily. But what Socrates is saying here is that the liar is not a separate person from the truth teller. They are the same people. And maybe that means that in each of us, there is a bit of liar as well as, well as truth teller. And are we capable of knowing our own lies? Uh, we see here, and maybe I'll just skip briefly to this section here. It follows kind of immediately after this. This is 368b to 369b. This is where Hippias attributes to himself skills that he really doesn't have. I mean, he, he surely can't believe all of this. So maybe this is just Socrates trying to demonstrate that in each of us, um, we have the capacity to lie uh, or to tell the truth. And then it's a question of choice, what we do. And here, I think we see Hippias lying, but he doesn't know that he's lying. So he's lying involuntarily. So I'll just I'll just read this because it, it's a good continuation. So this is 368b. Socrates says, Come then, Hippias, examine all the sciences similarly. Is there any that's different from these, or are they all like this? You are the wisest of people in the greatest number of crafts, as I once heard you boasting. In the marketplace, next to the tables of the bankers, you told of your great and enviable wisdom. You said you had gone to Olympia with everything you had in your body, the product of your own work. First, the ring you were wearing, you began with that, was your own work, showing that you knew how to engrave rings. And another signet, too, was your work, and a sturgeon and an oil bottle which you had made. Then you said you yourself had cut from leather the sandals you were wearing, and had woven your cloak and tunic. And what seemed to everyone most unusual and an ex exhibition of the greatest wisdom was when you said that the belt you wore around your tunic was like the very expensive Persian ones, and that you had plated it yourself." In addition to these things, you said that you brought poems with you, epic, tragic, and dithyrams, and many writings of all sorts and prose. You said you came with knowledge that distinguished you from all others on the subject, and I was just now speaking of, and also about rhythms and harmony, and the correctness of letters, and many other things besides, as I seem to remember. But I've forgotten to mention your artful technique, as it seems, of memory, in which you think you are the most brilliant. I suppose I have forgotten a great many other things as well. But I say, look both at your own crafts, for they are sufficient, and also those of others, and tell me, in accordance with what you and I have agreed upon, if you find any case in which one person is truthful and another, distinct not the same, person is a liar. Look for one in whatever sort of wisdom or villainy you like, or whatever you want to call it, but you will not find it, my friend, for none exists. So tell me. Hippias says, but I can't, Socrates, at least not offhand. And you never will, I think. But if what I say is true, you will remember what follows from our argument. I don't entirely understand what you mean, Socrates. Presumably that's because you are not using your memory technique. Plainly, you don't think you need it. But I will remind you, you realize you said that Achilles was truthful, whereas Odysseus was a liar and wily? Yes. You are now aware, then, that the same person has been discovered to be a liar and truthful, so that if Odysseus was a liar, he also becomes truthful, and if Achilles was truthful, he also becomes a liar, and these two men are not different from one another, not opposites, but similar. So the, the dialogue started with a discussion about Homer's Iliad, and Hippias makes the assertion that Odysseus was made by Homer to be 
wily and conniving and able to conceal and uh, deceive people with his lies. And here, Socrates, after a little bit of maneuvering, has established, and I, I didn't go into that part, but he's established that Achilles actually told untruthful things. Achilles told two different people that one, he told one that he was going to leave and he told the other one that he was going to stay. So he told untruth. He told different things to two people. So what do we see in this? Do we see in the world now people who are purely truthful, people who are only liars? And do we see people who try to um, establish themselves or assert themselves as truthful when they don't really know the distinction between truth and lie? Maybe it's the technology that we have in our world now that gives us many examples of different types of people. We have contact with all sorts of different types of people from all sorts of different perspectives. And you know, what are we seeing with what people are saying online or, or elsewhere? Kayla? Um, I think that these are exceptionally dichotomous terms, right? Truth and lie. I don't think people can be that in the world. People can't be entirely one thing or not. Right. There's and, no possible way that duality can exist. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess then does each of us contain at least the potential of lying as well as the potential of truth? Of course. Yeah. And I think that's an important point. And, it, you know, I guess Socrates elsewhere in the Phaedo, for example, said that everything comes to be in opposites. But that's every physical thing comes to be in opposites. Um, the soul or the animating force in us is not a physical thing. So does one soul become truthful and another soul become a liar? And does that mean that those souls are going to be truthful and liars all of their lives? Or uh, can one soul kind of waver between the truth and a lie? And it, this this question of wavering comes up in this dialogue as well. And we'll get into that uh, shortly, but uh, yeah. So, so Brenda, your thoughts? I think it depends a lot really on what you're talking about. I mean, clearly if you're saying, um, you know, I see a tree right there in front of me and the other person says, oh no, there's no tree there. I mean, obviously that's easier to figure out whether the tree is there or not. But for a lot of things, it involves the value system. Uh, a lot of things that people talk about are, um, you know, a value system. You know, this morning I was talking to my sister and she's all upset about her son. And I'm not going to say to her the honest truth of my observation, which is why are you so bent out of shape? That's not going to help her. So, you know, I think, uh, so would you say that I lied to her because I didn't really tell her what I really thought? No, I absolutely would not say that. So I think, you know, there's a lot of um, ways of looking at this and, uh, I think as Kayla kind of mentioned, it's not a black and white issue. There's many, many gradations and there's many um, aspects in between that have to be considered. But I do agree with the overall statement that we all are truth sayers and all liars to some extent, probably some more than others. You brought up what goes on. I think you're talking about modern politics where obviously there are outright mistruths being told. Um, so Anyways, that's what I have to say about that. And that's a great observation. Um, you know, maybe we could call that example of, of what you said as a white lie. 
or we've heard that term. I don't know if you would use that term, but we've heard that term before. And I've certainly told what I would consider to be white lies, which I don't think are things that harm anybody. They're meant to really not make people feel bad by not saying what I truly think. And maybe that's what Socrates is doing here throughout this dialogue. He never confronts Hippias to say what he truly thinks of what Hippias is saying. Uh, Socrates is like that. He he doesn't ever really say what he truly thinks. He's always just questioning. Uh, and there's a number of lines in here where he says, you'll know the wise person by seeing that I am questioning the wise person. Uh, that's how you'll know that I think that you're wise. Not that I will say that you're wise, but that's how you'll know that I think that you're wise by questioning. So yeah, I guess there's degrees of untruth. Uh, there's the untruths that hurt people and the untruths that are designed not to hurt people, but maybe just to smooth things over. So that's a really good example. Um, Cesare, your thoughts. Okay. So why is this, uh, why is this a thing? I mean, lying is, uh, we all lie. Lying is a useful tool. Uh, people do that all the time in order to gain an advantage in combat and in the marketplace. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just what we do. The question is, what are the effects of that? Uh, I mean, seriously, like military misdirection is it's all about deception. And every one of us will do that to survive in case of, you know, confront, being confronted by an aggressor or sometimes being the aggressor. So, yeah, I mean, it's, lying is just so damn useful. So where's the problem here? Why, yeah. why, why is this, a, why is this yeah. a thing? And that's a great question. And, and I invite everybody to, to contribute your thoughts on that uh, question, because I think where we're going with this dialogue is the next part we'll look at is the question of who judges whether a lie is being told. I think that's an important thing because, you know, if, if as you say, there are lies all, all around the place and it's just become a part of our culture to do it this way, maybe part of the economic culture to do it this way, then the question is, how do we sort through these lies and how do we gauge what's a lie, especially a harmful lie uh, versus a uh, versus the truth? And so the next section that we'll read, which is 373C to 374C, gets into that question of voluntary lying and involuntary lying. So voluntary lying is being a cause of untruth. Whereas involuntary lying is being the effect of untruth. And so maybe to partially answer your question, it's that it's the difference between cause and effect. Do I want to be the cause of untruth? I would think I would prefer to be the effect of untruth. I don't want to cause untruths. I think that would be worse. But then Socrates comes to the surprising conclusion that the truthful person who voluntarily tells a lie is better than the one who involuntarily tells a lie. So we get into that discussion. Uh, so that I think that's an important thing. And then to, you know, to take it from what Brenda was saying about the value system, we'll see that too in this next reading, where they're talking about doing bad things physically, like running poorly. But then Socrates raises the interesting question. We'll see, he asks about gracefulness, which is a value judgment. And uh, that's where we get bent out of shape, to use a, a term I think that Brenda used earlier, that 
we don't agree on the value things. And that's where I think um, understanding truth from lies is especially important because it's polarizing now. It's polarizing people. People are having difficulty agreeing on values. And the Protagoras, which we just finished discussing in three episodes, uh, was all about whether virtue can be teachable. And so we have this question, you know, Socrates said virtue can't be taught. And if it can't be taught, then how do we deal with differences in values? And how do we determine who's lying about values and who's telling the truth about values? So that was a great question. Those were a few thoughts, but if anybody else wants to offer uh, an opinion, I'd, I'd love to hear it. So like, if you just look at using truth versus lying just as a tool, the, the real question is, what are the results of that? Are you building a better society? Are you building better relationships because of it? Or are you destroying those? And obviously, it's going to be judged by the members of that society, members of those relationships, potential future members, or, you know, people who might not be interested in such relationships. So, so that that's really the end goal. So again, it, it's really just the truth and lies, just the paintbrush that you use to, to create a painting, right? Mm. I think this is a utilitarian argument. Well, I mean, kind of, sorry. Um, is it all right if I speak up? Oh, yeah, sorry. by all means, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like I I hear, you know, I kind of hear what you're saying about like those are the, you know, those are our paintbrushes that we're painting a picture with. But I think this exercise that Plato is undertaking is to strip away those value things. Get, get away from what are the effects of the lie, right? Or the truth which are these society building things or value creations or cultural whatever you know we're we're getting away from that and trying to examine truth you know and untruth to better understand those things regardless of their effect you can extrapolate to a cultural level level sure but if you don't have the understanding of what they are you know at their core then you're you're allowing your effect to determine your cause. Your your end justifies your means, mm. and and so we're trying to. I think in this in the, the dialogue that's happening here in Lesser Hippias, we're trying to get away from, at least in the initial, removing some of those value statements to get just down to truth versus untruth or truth versus lie. That's an interesting way that you put it to to strip away those value judgments. And um, this maybe gets to the third theme that I've outlined for today, which we're, we can talk about a little bit later in the, the question of dialectic, uh, where it's almost a meeting of minds. I, I use that term, actually, I, I was re-listening to an, an earlier episode, and I used that term before for dialectic. And I really, it, it struck a chord to to me today when I uh, listened to it again, that maybe part of this is to see how we can reach a better understanding of each other's perspectives and to kind of strip away, as you said, those value judgments. So I think that was an interesting uh, perspective, an interesting way of putting it. So Brenda, your thoughts? I just wanted to bring in the aspect of intention. Mm -hmm. um, spe specifically wanted to um, address it to Kayla's friend there. Do you think that intention, you talked about result, would you say something about how you feel about the intention of telling a lie or telling the truth? Does that matter? Does that come into the to the mix? So, I mean, in response, 
it, it can. But I, I think, again, I think that the, the, the dialogue that Plato is creating here is attempting to not necessarily have that discussion, especially in the early going, right? Because later in the discussion, we will add, you know, the, the unintentional liar versus the intentional liar. So we will get into intent. But I think the start of the conversation is laying the groundwork. Like, what are the dynamics of, you know, telling a truth and an untruth? And, you know, what does that look like? And what is, um, you know, there's there's some language in the in the text that describes it as good or, you know, something like that. But even if you re replace the word good, um, you know, like in my own notes, I wrote preferable. Right. And, you know, you'll we can get into, you know, later in the text, we'll get into the we talked about lameness of limbs and athletic ability and all of that. And, you know, we're kind of drawing these parallels of well, which is preferable. You, you know, again, you're, that's adding value into it. But, you know, the intention, I think, does play a role and it plays a role in the cause and effect of all of these, you know, of these interactions. But at the, to start, we're trying to, you know, define our terms, mm -hmm. lay out what is what is truth and what is untruth. What is the source of truth and untruth, you know, which is what we'll get into in the intention part, like the unintentional liar versus the intentional liar. So I, I do think that it is impossible to separate me when I lie, like from my intention. When I do take undertake that activity there, like there's a goal I have in mind. Absolutely. But I think to start, you just want to say, what are these things that we're looking at, as opposed to why like not you know left arm and right arm like well they, okay they are left arm and right arm <laughs> now we can get into the you know what do they do why do they do yeah thanks um i didn't realize that this was uh that i was supposed to read the dialogue before so oh no <laughs> yeah um so thanks you pointed out that the idea of intention is is coming yeah yeah thank yeah. you no worries and actually we i have that on the screen Maybe I can read this bit then to, to get us more into that topic. Uh, so thank you for raising that, Brenda. And this is not too far along from what I read before. I put this under the heading of who judges the virtue of voluntary and involuntary action. So in this case, voluntary and involuntary lying. And I thought that maybe voluntary lying, as I said earlier, is uh, you're, you're being a cause. You're being a cause of the untruth, whereas involuntary you are more the effect. You don't know what you're doing, but something has caused you to lie. So that's where I kind of saw a difference. And, and that's where I tied it back to what happened in the greater Hippias, where Socrates demonstrated that Hippias did not know the difference between cause and effect. They had that wonderful debate about uh, the meaning of the fine. And Hippias could only indicate what things he thought were fine, but not how they were caused by the fine itself. And of course, when we talk of, like talking about value judgments, I mean, fine is a huge value judgment from the Greek word cologne, meaning fine, beautiful, excellent. It could mean a bunch of different things depending on your translation. And so there's all of that value judgment in there. And Hippias just was unable to go back to the original value. He was unable to find the first principles of the fine. He was only able to tell of things that he thought were fine and there was that example of, of a soup spoon. So Hippias said that anything that has fine things in it, like gold, is necessarily fine. 
Socrates says, well, is a gold spoon the best spoon for eating soup with, or is a wooden spoon better for eating soup with? And so that's where Hippias had to back down and say, well, okay, I think gold is a fine thing, but maybe it's not fine in every case. It's appropriate in some cases, but not always fine. So yeah, that was an interesting kind of value judgment area that we ran into in that episode. And and we'll see that, I think, here too. So that was just a bit of background here. So I'll, I'll just maybe read this section here, 373C to 374C. Socrates says, I want very much, Hippias, to investigate what we were just now saying, whether those who go wrong voluntarily or those who go wrong involuntarily are better. I think the most correct way to pursue our investigation is as follows. You answer, do you call one sort of runner a good one? I do. And one sort bad? Yes. You think the one who runs well is a good runner? one who runs badly, a bad one? Yes. And one who runs slowly runs badly, and one who runs quickly runs well? Yes. In a race, then, and in running, quickness is a good thing, and slowness bad? What else would it be? Which one is the better runner, then? The one who runs slowly, voluntarily, or the one who does so involuntarily? The one who does so voluntarily. Isn't running doing something? Doing something, of course. If doing, doesn't it also accomplish something? Yes. So one who runs badly accomplishes something bad and shameful in a race. Bad? How else? One who runs slowly runs badly? Yes. So the good runner voluntarily accomplishes this bad and shameful thing, and the bad runner involuntarily? So it seems, at least. In a race, then, one who accomplishes bad things involuntarily is more worthless than one who does them voluntarily. In a race, at least. What about in wrestling? Which is the better wrestler, one who falls down voluntarily or involuntarily? One who does so voluntarily, it seems. Is it more worthless and shameful in wrestling to fall down or to knock down the opponent? To fall down? So also in wrestling, one who voluntarily has worthless and shameful accomplishments is a better wrestler than one who has them involuntarily. So it seems. What about in other physical activities? Isn't the physically better person able to accomplish both sorts of things, the strong and the weak? the shameful, and the fine. So whenever he accomplishes worthless physical results, the one who is physically better does them voluntarily, whereas the one who is worse does them involuntarily. That's how it seems to be in matters of strength also. What about gracefulness, Hippias? Doesn't the better body strike shameful and worthless poses voluntarily, and the worse body involuntarily? What do you think? That's right. So awkwardness, when voluntary, counts towards virtue, but one involuntarily toward worthlessness. Apparently. So that was that section where, you know, to bring in that question of value judgment, this word gracefulness, this is not a physical property that everyone would agree on. Everyone has their different view of gracefulness, what's graceful and what's not. And so uh, Hippias goes from talking about physical results, which are easy to measure, like the winner of a race, the winner of a wrestling match, these are easier things to determine because they're objective. But here, Socrates then quickly takes it to a subjective matter, which is the question of gracefulness. And then we have this problem because if a good soul who knows the truth is doing bad voluntarily in a physical thing, that might produce one result, but uh, is this question of awkwardness, as Socrates says, when voluntary count toward virtue, but when involuntary toward worthlessness? I mean, we're not all blessed with gracefulness. 
And how are we to judge truth and lie in that kind of value judgment? Any thoughts on that? Kayla? I, this shows up in my work a lot too. So we're trying to use, people often use physical ways to describe emotions and internal private experiences. So we assess values based on how we perceive them from schemas and automatic thoughts and all of that part that develops. I really like this intentional separation of body and mind to kind of trip up. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's the separation of body and mind or, or the soul uh, and the physical, you know, the, the soul may be the metaphysical and the physical body. It's easier to gauge truth in the physical than it is in the metaphysical. And, you know, Socrates says many times, and we heard him saying at the end of the Protagoras, that measurement is the greatest skill that we can have. Protagoras was the sophist who thought that man was the measure of all things. And so that implies that man is capable of measuring all things, including metaphysical value things, which, um, yeah, seems to be rather more difficult. Um, so... Hippias didn't claim that man is the measure of all things. It was Protagoras. Protagoras was a much more well-spoken, thoughtful sophist, I think, than Hippias. Whether the real Hippias was that way, as, as boastful and conceitful as uh, he's painted here is you know, a question. I don't know if it really matters. I think the point here is that we all know people like Hippias who come forward with these claims and, and reach these conclusions without really applying a full measure of reason is that where they where the mind goes into that realm of being which is not this changing realm of becoming that the physical body lives in and reaches into that realm of being to really kind of try to uh, find where it's standing on that divided line of knowledge that i talked about from the republic so brenda your thoughts the example you gave, uh, the statement you 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 gave, uh, man is the measure of all things. So you could actually use that as the as a great example to deal with this issue of lying or telling the truth. I can argue that statement both ways. Man is the measure of all things because there's nobody else around to measure it except man. <laughs> mm. But then you can say that the statement is not truth because we simply can't say that it's the end of the road. We can only say that it's the best we can do because we're the only ones around to measure something. So it's a very good example of how you can see a lie in there, but it just depends on how you're looking at it. There's actually a truth and a lie both present at the same time. Yeah, I love that. It, it's really, it, it reminds us that we are the observers or the, at least the soul is the observer it uses the five physical senses to the extent that it can. There's certain things that aren't accessible to the senses, such as truth, uh, where we have to go into that realm of eternal being to find at least the path towards truth. But to the extent that we are the observers, we are the ones who are measuring. And we are the ones to which the measurements make a difference. Like this is what we do during our lives. And, and that's why I think Socrates said that that's the most important thing is that we are able to make measurement. And uh, this is why he continuously talks about math, uh, numbers, you know, he can, he's always talking about even and odd numbers. And, you know, I could get into that. I, I have some thoughts, I think, on why he keeps doing that. He doesn't do that in this dialogue, but uh, he, he does that in a number of places. And that's, I think, really saying that it is critical that we measure, but are we 
capable of measuring all things and doing so correctly. And and so the line, I think, in the Theotetus, which was where it was first raised, was Protagoras said in the Theotetus, man is the measure of all things, of the things that are that they are, and of the things that are not that they are not. So it's it's this ability to determine unequivocally what is real and what is not real. And I think we are getting into a world now where technology is delivering some potentially really unreal things to us. In fact, there was a horrific story last week about a woman, I think, who received a phone call and and the voice sounded like it was from her child. And I think this was the story that the person who sounded like her child said that they were kidnapped and a, a ransom was demanded. But in fact, it wasn't her child. She could have sworn that it was her child speaking, but it was actually an AI generated voice. And that's a case where we get into this lie situation where we think it's real. We have no reason to believe it's not real, but we can be manipulated. And I think that's a really significant problem if we think that we're capable of measuring all the time the difference between real and unreal. Um, so, yeah, thank, thanks for bringing that. You know, the the observer, uh, we are the observers and that to us it makes a difference. And I think maybe to answer a question that was asked earlier, um, maybe that's one of the main reasons that we this dialogue is important. So, so thank you for that. So one thing I was going to say is kind of as we move into these value kind of judgments here, we can now retroactively kind of go through some of those previous examples and apply our value, like the our value judgments or our measurement capabilities to those previous examples, right? Like we, we can backtrack since we've brought up gracefulness, but we can go backtrack to the wrestler. And, you know, we can say, well, the, the one who loses on purpose is the better wrestler, but we have a direct confrontation that we can see an actual outcome. And if the better wrestler loses, are they the better wrestler, whether it's on purpose or not, because that's still a loss. Right. And like, so it's kind of one of those interesting things where you're like, well, now that we're applying values, it muddies the water even further, you know, kind of how uh, our now departed guest was mentioning kind of intentions and outcomes and all of those things. Well, now that we have outcomes, if you intentionally lose, you are still the loser. Like you have still lost your competition, even if you are the superior. So, you know, it gets, it, you know, now that we've got value added into that, it kind of adds another layer that we can apply to those seemingly simple examples earlier in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And and I think the the word better itself is a value judgment too, right? So is it better that somebody wins or is it better that somebody participates? Does losing or winning even matter? It, maybe it's just the fun of the event. So better can be gauged differently uh, by different perspectives. So again, I think that's a really good example of how we get into problems here and and how the intentions really maybe make a difference. Certainly, I think if you're truthful and you go about deliberately deceiving people with an intent to defraud them or an intent to harm them, then uh, that's that's quite problematic. But then we have this issue that you know, the truthful person and liar inhabit the same body. And how does one 
prevent the lies from from hurting people and and how do others gauge whether they've been lied to or not uh, whether it's voluntary or involuntary and there's actually really good connection to the conclusion of this it really speaks a lot about the nature of teaching and sophistry uh, as it existed back then but i think the nature of any teaching I love the conclusion of this, and so I'm looking forward to reading that because it definitely talks about how we get guidance from others in these matters. And again, to be very cautious about the guidance that we get from others. In the Protagoras, uh, it started with the excitement of the young person wanting to see this great sophist and to learn from the great sophist. And Socrates says, well, be careful, be a knowledgeable consumer, because once you consume that knowledge, it stays in your soul. You can never get rid of it. It stays in your soul. Uh, and so we have to be very careful what we accept from sophists or from people we believe are wise. Are they really wise? And to go back to the Cradleus, uh, that really interesting definition of wisdom as knowledge of motion, right? Because everything in the physical realm of becoming is in constant motion. It's in, It never stops moving. And so the five senses are gauging this motion, measuring this motion, all about us. And what do they make of it? Uh, I think that's really understanding the connections between cause and effect. There is, for every motion, there's a cause. And for every motion, there's an effect. I mean, that's Newton's second law of motion. So I think that's, at least in the physical world, that's important to understand. So, And along with what you said about being careful what we accept from sophists, I think we also have to be careful what we accept from ourselves. So when we engage in something that like the example I gave with my sister, I'm very careful I don't go too far because I know I'm not being entirely honest. So I have to be very careful just for the safety of my own soul <laughs> that I I tread very carefully. I, I That's what I love about Plato is that he has that sense of the good and um, he never sacrifices that. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. It, the, the the true, the good and the beautiful uh, and how they all fit together in Plato, I think is, is key. But I, I like the way you said that, you know, be careful to have the safety of your soul in top of mind, because it, you can be very easily led into these, uh, into these situations where one lie leads to a bigger lie. And then eventually you're just living a lie. So definitely understanding your own capacity. And, and certainly in what I read, that passage uh, about Hippias boasting uh, about all of these things that he could do. Well, you know, could he really do that? You know, is he really being honest with himself? I think you really hit the nail on the head there, Brenda. Uh, Kayla. When we're talking about moving from intentional versus, well, involuntary and voluntary truth-telling, I think I'm under the interpretation that this is being described in like, permanent ways or static ways, but this is very fluid, right? You can oscillate from telling the truth voluntarily and involuntarily within the same sentence. So I don't think that this is something that a person sits in and stays in permanently. We have a great capacity to learn and unlearn. When we think about absorbing other people's influence, wisdom, whatever we want to call about that, continue to use those critical thinking skills, but also let's not fragilize the human mind. Yeah, I love that. Okay, yeah, Yeah. that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, no, I I love that. Yeah, just to, yeah, to to learn uh, so that you're at least able to distinguish whether you're voluntarily or involuntarily doing something because we all 
we all do things. We think that we're being voluntary about it, but actually maybe we don't even give ourselves a choice. Maybe we wind up doing these things involuntarily and others are really causing us to do this. And mm -hmm. that's where we have to be careful about teachers as well, because teachers might teach us that, you know, virtue is one particular way of doing things or thinking. And then we might just follow that. And we do those things. We think that we're doing them voluntarily, but maybe it's, we're actually doing them involuntarily because we're following that teacher and not applying our own reason to it. So I think applying our own reason is absolutely critical. And Socrates in the Mino, he kind of ends the Mino, which was a dialogue on knowledge as well, by saying, never stop to uh, learn and to question. This kind of the one imperative that Socrates had, you know, Socrates doesn't say you must do this or you must do that, but that's the one thing he said that you absolutely must do uh, is to continue to seek uh, and and to learn. So, yeah, I think that was a great point. Just in the way that he says in the apology, the unexamined life is one is one not worth living. So it's it's yeah. very dire that we hold critical thinking and testing. And I'm so sorry about my cat. No, She's no really down right now. No <laughs> um, yeah. and life is one not worth living. We have to constantly assess values that we're given from a young age to an old age. It's a critical part of being a human. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a great way of putting it. And I love what he said too, in, again, to go back to the Theotius, which is also on knowledge, he implied that if we don't examine our lives, we become kind of just uh, caricatures. I've forgotten the words. I've reused them on notes several times, but he says that the greatest evil is to not see yourself, to, to lose the ability to see yourself. And then you just become a caricature and you become a puppet for uh, everybody else to use you and you become worthless. So I think that's a uh, that's a, a great admonition is that we should always be able to see ourselves, to be able to reflect on ourselves and to understand what we're doing. Because if, if we don't, then we wind up doing things that are just involuntary and quite harmful, I think, to others. So excellent observation. So I thought maybe just to move on to this other part here, um, this idea of dialectic and questioning and wavering, because Socrates mentions a number of times that he wavers. Uh, so he's come out with this bold opinion that um, that doing things, it, lying voluntarily is better than lying involuntarily. And then he says, I waver about it. So he's, he's just being cute, Socrates, I guess. But I thought I'd read a couple of parts here. This is from... 369C to 370A. This is before that part that I just read before. And so this is where Hippias is calling out Socrates for his way of arguing. And we see this in, in almost every dialogue that Socrates is involved in. You, you always think that Socrates knows the answer before he asks the question. And people get upset with him, and they got upset with him enough that they wound up putting him to death. Uh, for asking questions. So, but, you know, maybe you can ask questions in annoying ways. And so maybe he kind of annoys people here. So, uh, so he, he certainly has annoyed Hippias with this. And so Hippias declares at 369C, he says, Oh, Socrates, you're always weaving arguments of this kind. You pick out whatever is the most difficult part of the argument and fastened onto it in minute detail and don't dispute about the whole subject under discussion. So now, if you wish, I'll prove to you by sufficient argument 
based upon much evidence that Homer made Achilles better than Odysseus, Odysseus and not a liar. And whereas he made the latter deceitful, a teller of many lies and worse than Achilles. If you wish, you may then offer counter arguments to mine to the effect that the other is better. That way, these people here will know more which of us speaks better. And uh, just break there just to say that, you know, here he's putting an appeal to the audience to determine the truth. So that was an interesting twist there. You know, he's he's kind of saying maybe we're not capable of dealing with it or determining the truth ourselves. We'll leave it to the audience. Socrates replies, Hippias, I don't dispute that you are wiser than I. Maybe this is this is a bit of a lie here, right? But it is always my custom to pay attention when someone is saying something, especially when the speaker seems to me to be wise. And because I desire to learn what he means, I question him thoroughly and examine and place side by side the things he says so I can learn. If the speaker seems to me to be some worthless person, I neither ask questions nor do I care what he says. This is how you'll recognize whom I consider wise. You'll find me being persistent about what's said by this sort of person, questioning him so that I can benefit by learning something. And so now I noticed as you were speaking that in the lines you just now recited, to show that Achilles speaks to Odysseus as if Odysseus were a fraud, it seems ridiculous to me, if you speak truly, that Odysseus, the wily one, is nowhere portrayed as lying, whereas Achilles is portrayed as a wily person, according to your argument. In any case, he lies. So I thought this section was interesting from a couple of perspectives. Um, so here, as I mentioned before, in their, in their talking about this particular part of the Iliad, and again, um, Hippias has said that Homer intended for Odysseus to be the wily liar uh, and Achilles to be truthful. And so Socrates has reminded Hippias that Achilles told a lie. He, as I mentioned, he said to one person that he was leaving, he said to the other person that he wasn't. So uh, he told a lie. So he concludes anyways, he told a lie. Whether he's better or not, he told a lie. So, you know, I thought that was that was interesting. And again, maybe just to support the idea that we all have that truthful part of us or potential in us and that potential of being a liar. Um, the other thing I found interesting was in this part where he says, if the speaker seems to me just to be some worthless person, I never ask questions, nor do I care what he says. This is how you'll recognize whom I, whom I consider wise. And I think he's really addressing Hippias there. But Hippias doesn't really know that he's addressing Hippias there. So Hippias has assumed that Hippias is wise, but Hippias is not examining himself. You know, he's he's not living that examined life. So I think this was an interesting kind of sideline here, and it's this kind of irony that Socrates put keeps putting in these uh, in these things. So, so that was uh, one part of that, and then I have another section here. This is just actually before what I just read. This is 372a to 373b. Socrates says, didn't it emerge just now that voluntary liars are better than involuntary ones? But Socrates, how could those who are voluntarily unjust and are voluntary and purposeful evildoers be better than those who act in that way involuntarily? For these people, there seems to be much lenience when they act unjustly without knowing or lie or do some other evil. The laws, too, are surely much harsher towards those who do evil and lie voluntarily than towards those who do so involuntarily. You see, Hippias, I am telling the truth when I say that I am persistent in questioning wise people. It may be that this is the only good trait I have and that all the others I have are quite worthless. I make mistakes as to the way things are and don't know how they are. 
I find it sufficient evidence of this, that when I am with one of you who are highly regarded for wisdom, and to whose wisdom all the Greeks bear witness, I show myself to know nothing. For I think pretty well none of the same things as you do. Yet what greater evidence of ignorance is there than when someone disagrees with wise men? I have one wonderfully good trait which saves me. I'm not ashamed to learn. I inquire and ask questions, and I'm very grateful to the one who answers, and I've never failed in gratitude to anyone. I've never denied it when I've learned anything, pretending that what I learned was my own discovery. Instead, I sing the praises of the one who taught me as a wise person and proclaim what I learned from him. So indeed, now I don't agree with what you are saying, but disagree very strongly. But I know very well that this is my fault. It's because I'm the sort of person I am, not to say anything better of myself than I deserve. To me, Hippias, it appears entirely the opposite to what you say. Those who harm people and commit injustice and lie and cheat and go wrong voluntarily rather than involuntarily are better than those who do so involuntarily. However, sometimes I believe the opposite, and I go back and forth about all this, plainly because I don't know. But now, at this moment, a fit of lightheadedness has come over me, and I think those who voluntarily go wrong regarding something are better than those who do so involuntarily. I blame the preceding arguments from my present condition, making it appear to me now that those who do any of these things involuntarily are more worthless than those who do them voluntarily. So please be nice and don't refuse to cure my soul. You'll do me a much greater good if you give my soul relief from ignorance than if you gave my body relief from disease. But if you wish to give a long speech, I tell you in advance that you won't cure me for I couldn't follow you. If you are willing to answer me as you did just now, you'll benefit me a great deal, and I think you yourself won't be harmed. I might justly call for your help too, son of Apomantus, and he, here he is referring to Eutychus, for you go to me into a discussion with Hippias. So now, if Hippias isn't willing to answer me, ask him for me. This is where Eutychus, who only has a few lines in this whole dialogue, chimes in. He says, well, Socrates, I don't think Hippias will need us to plead with him, for that's not what he said earlier. He said that he wouldn't flee from any man's questioning. Right, Hippias? Isn't that what you said? I did, but Socrates always creates confusion in arguments and seems to argue unfairly. Oh, excellent Hippias, I don't do that voluntarily, for then I'd be wise and awesome according to your argument, but involuntarily. So please be lenient with me, for you say that one who acts unfairly involuntarily should be treated leniently. So I, I love that section. There's so much going on there. I don't know if there's any parts that particularly struck you as as you were listening to it. I mean, Socrates starts off by saying he's telling the truth, which was an interesting statement given the subject of this dialogue. And then he, he claims that he's ignorant because he's disagreeing with a wise man. Socrates really says that he absolutely disagrees with somebody. This is kind of interesting, so... Um, Kelly, your thoughts? How I took this is that Socrates is maybe gently, maybe not gently highlighting that he's not being a good sportsman around mm. this. You know, mm. if you if you can't hold your premise down and your premise keeps getting the loopholes are keep getting are, you know, being discovered, this is what's going to happen. So if you're unable to be consistent and if you keep moving the goalposts, mm. That's why these questions are going to become more intense. Like that, keep moving the goalpost. <laughs> yeah, it's that's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, and I think they've moved it so many times in this dialogue. It's uh, and, and maybe that's why he he keeps saying that don't be long winded. And, and that's right. something that Socrates said in the Protagoras several times too. He kept 
saying to Protagoras, don't be long-winded because I won't be able to follow you. And here he says, I won't be able to follow you. I mean, yeah. And, and you know, it's actually interesting here that I'm just looking for it. Um, yeah, this this part here, he says, I blame the preceding arguments for my present condition. In other words, for his potential confusion on this. So he's he's listened to the arguments of a wise person or, or somebody who purports to be wise or people hold to be wise. And that form of wisdom has brought him to this conclusion, which he seems to admit is conflicting with something that he doesn't think is right necessarily, but it is conflicting with that. And it's it's that somebody wise has put forward this argument. And maybe this is where Socrates is continuing to do his voluntary lying, whereas Hippias doesn't realize that he's lying sometimes. So Hippias is actually the one who's involuntarily lying, and Socrates is kind of voluntarily lying. Hello. So this time it's clay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but yes, yes. Um, well, I think this is kind of one of the kind of the interesting things here is, you know, he says like, all right, well, like I've, we've gotten, I've listened to this wise person, like you were just saying, and I, I'm finding conflict within what I thought I knew. And so I ask clarifying questions, right? And like he, he, he gets this and, he, you know, I, I feel like this, and there's a segment that you read earlier, if it were put into film, for, for example, like there you there would be physical tension. Like you, I think in this time you would see Hippias upset. Like you can kind of infer it from the language used. And here you see Socrates kind of placating. Like, yeah. well, I only ask questions to those that I think are wise. Or don't please don't be long-winded, or we don't want to go to this great oration because I don't want this to be about who is a better orator. I am trying to understand your point. And uh, there are there are pieces of what you're saying that don't make sense to me. So let us examine them together. And I think that's a it's an interesting approach. Um, and especially because we uh, were in this section that was subtitled you know, something something along the lines of dialectics. Right. So we've got, yeah, dialectic questioning and wavering. Right. And, you know, it's just a well, yes, of course, like we this, we have this dialogue. We are we are doing this back and forth. And the purpose of this is to get to a point of greater understanding. That's the purpose of the dialectic, yeah. is to to have these things which seem to be in tension and come to a resolution. It's like, a uh, what am I trying to say here? Almost like an allegory for the dialectic itself. I like that. It's, uh, I mean, you know, dialectic is, the way I always interpret that is it's looking for the first principles. And so... When Socrates says, I'm persistent, I'm persistent in questioning wise people, uh, he's looking for the first principle. He knows that he can never fully grasp the first principle of everything. None of us can, but he's looking for direction in, in finding that first principle. And that's why he's questioning. And I, I like what you said about the physical tension. I was sort of uh, witnessing that in my mind as well. And thinking again, back to the Protagoras, there's a great section in the, in the Protagoras that we covered where... Socrates asks a series of questions, and with each question starts to get closer to the truth, and Protagoras starts to get more and more frustrated to the point where Socrates makes a statement and Protagoras just stays silent. He just doesn't answer. <laughs> so uh, I think I think this is what Socrates does to people, and maybe that's why some people didn't like him. So, But it's uh, it's difficult to accept those questions, I guess, especially if 
you're not willing to examine your own life and not willing to admit uh, where you don't know the truth. Admitting that you don't know things, like the Oracle at Delphi proclaimed Socrates the wisest man alive, for he knew one thing, which is that he knew nothing. And maybe that's partially what Socrates is doing here, is he's just trying to say, well, you know, you have to kind of, we all need to start from the perspective that we know nothing, and then question each other to find out how much we truly actually do know. Like the notion that Hippias said that somebody who does wrong involuntarily should be treated leniently in that uh, earlier part of that reading. You know, maybe that's what we kind of assume. Maybe that's a tradition, but, you know, is that necessarily right? Or maybe it's better that we stop people doing wrong involuntarily by educating, by spreading knowledge so that people don't do wrong involuntarily. So there's several ways of seeing that. And, you know, I love the ending of that. Hippias declares that Socrates creates confusion and seems to argue unfairly. So his his pride has been wounded, you know, as you said, uh, that kind of physical tension there. And I love this ending line, you know, oh, excellent Hippias, I didn't, I don't do that voluntarily for then I'd be wise and awesome, according to your argument, but involuntarily. <laughs> so those who do wrong voluntarily are wise and awesome. So he's he's playing on that conclusion, you know, that's he's calling into question that confu- that conclusion. So please be lenient with me for you say that one who acts unfairly and voluntarily should be treated leniently. Uh, and again, that's that convention that he's questioning. So this is great. There's so many things happening in this in this section that I thought I wanted to highlight that. And then to move from there to the conclusion of the dialogue, just a short part here that I can read, 376A to 376C. I really like this because I think it's driving at a lot of things that Socrates is trying to say about the sophists. So, you know, a sophist is somebody who has wisdom, supposedly, but a philosopher, which includes the root of sophism, uh, is somebody who loves knowledge. Uh, And so maybe Socrates is trying to say something here in this section from 376a to 376c. So this is right at the end of the dialogue. Uh, So again, Socrates is going back to the point. So he says, So the more powerful and better soul, when it does injustice, will do injustice voluntarily, and the worthless soul involuntarily? Apparently. And isn't the good man the one who has a good soul, and the bad man the one who has a bad soul? But surely he has. So the one who voluntarily misses the mark and does what is shameful and unjust hippias, that is, if there is such a person, would be no other than the good man. I can't agree with you in that, Socrates. Nor I with myself, Hippias. But given the argument, we can't help having it look that way to us now at any rate. However, as I said before, on on these matters, I waver back and forth and never believe the same thing. And it's not surprising at all that I or any other ordinary person should waver. But if you wise men are going to do it too, that means something terrible for us if we can't stop our wavering even after we've put ourselves in your company. And there ends the dialogue. And what do we take away from that conclusion? Several things I think that he says here, Hippias disagrees, and Socrates says again that he's wavering. Uh, and you know, maybe in saying that he's wavering, he's saying that none of us is able to hit the truth directly. And so we always are moving from one side to the other of the truth, some just closer than others. So Kayla or Clay? Uh, it's, Clay. Clay, it's Clay this time. 
Well, yeah. And so I think it's, uh, you know, this is something interesting because we've been taught, you know, one of the things, the themes that you've been steering us back towards is how wisdom is, oh, and now I forgot it. Is it what knowledge in motion, right? Yeah. No, knowledge of motion. Yeah. Knowledge, okay. Yes. Knowledge of motion. Yeah. But, but that's how the educational process works is it is in motion. We can't stop our wavering. Well, of course you can't because you are, you are constantly in a state of motion and taking on additional information, new information, questionable information. And so you are, you're always kind of in motion in that sense. And so that, you know, that your opinion or conclusion might be wavering is not a surprise if the way that you reflect and question and discern is something that you can rely, you know, fall back on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, and so maybe you're saying that knowledge is not a static thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, knowledge is continuously changing because the things that the observer sees are also continually changing. So it's the observer who generates knowledge and the observed is always changing. And so knowledge would always change, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what the thought process was there. And, you know, and just, and again, kind of, you know, with the idea of motion happening and the dialogue taking place in this particular transcript, we've got, you know, this truth and untruth. Well, also in motion, right? Because even if you just take your base characters, when you take Achilles, well, when Achilles introduces himself the first time, you know, there is an, there's an episode for him to tell a truth or an untruth. And, and that progresses with every instance that Achilles is on the page, as it were. You know, and the same is true for Odysseus, right? So like it's a it's an interesting idea to have this conclusion of one is a liar and one is a not one is not, when each one of them is confronted several times throughout their texts as having the opportunity to be either of those things. Mm-hmm. And kind of the the motion of that, and it's like, well, w- which portions of the movement or motion are we taking as this person being a truth teller or, or a teller of untruths? Hmm. I love the way you put that. Which portion of the motion? Yeah, that, that's a really powerful way of putting it. Yeah, because if we're all wavering around this one point, then we're sometimes in the truthful part of that divided line, maybe. And sometimes we're in the untruthful part. And the question is, how do we know which part we're in, which is the title that I put on the cover page? Yeah, I really like the way you put that. And I think, too, here he's calling into question Homer. Plato is not a friend of Homer. (laughs) He uh, not mocks Homer, but he is continually picking apart what Homer wrote. And so I think he's trying to say that it may be poetic license to think that somebody is just a liar and that somebody is just truthful. But here, Socrates is trying to see through that poetic license and to see the reality of it. So we might believe in the poetry just because it's beautiful poetry and it's you know a compelling story, but we need to not let the poet necessarily teach us and look at our own, apply our own reason in understanding the characters. I think that was a really important lesson of this. And that's why he started with part of the Iliad, you know, that very famous poem questioning that assumption that Odysseus is the wily one um, and Achilles is the honest one. And 
I think he he's maybe successfully found an example where that's not true, and we need to question what the poet has has said. So, so that's great. Yeah, uh, Brenda, your thoughts on that or anything else on this? Yeah, I really like the idea of um, bringing up the idea of motion, and I like using the word motion much better than the word waver. Although they both connote, obviously, movement, um, waver has a very negative characteristic, I think, attached to it, where motion is just honoring this flow, this natural change that would occur. Mm -hmm. I really like, James, how you made the different differentiation between a sophist who claims to be wise and a philosopher who loves wisdom. I think you summarized everything with that expression, because what that meant to me was... The sophist is going to argue his points. He's going to make all these distinctions and all, all these discriminations, and he's going to try to pin this down. Good, bad, you know, lie, truth. Whereas the philosopher who loves wisdom loves the process, accepts it all, and basically captures that, that idea of motion that Clay was talking about and just honors the whole process. I really, really think you nailed it with that use of that expression. Thank you. And, and yeah, I mean, you really nailed it. I think when you said that the philosopher loves the process and loves the motion, uh, I hadn't thought of, of it that way before. Yeah, I, I think it, Socrates here clearly likes the process. I think Hippias becomes more challenged by it. And, and certainly in the Protagoras, Protagoras didn't necessarily love the process. So yeah, that's, that's maybe a good conclusion is that the, the sophist wants to reach the conclusions which are, in truth, not entirely knowable and require dialectic, which is a process between people. But to hold yourself as wise and others as unwise kind of is maybe an abuse of the process. So whereas Socrates just asks questions, uh, I, I like that, uh, loving the process. That's great. Uh, Kayla? Can you clarify something for me because when I think about these folks talking I see it as like nearly a game right like it's a sport the argument of debate so when I think about Hippias he's coming to the baseball game with his bat his glove and then when the game gets too hard he's refusing to play am I seeing that correctly there's a bit of that um yeah certainly where Hippias complains that Socrates argues unfairly he complains that Socrates creates confusion. Well, Hippias hears this wise man. I mean, he's he's helped himself to be the wisest in everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and so why would he be confused by Socrates? Like that just doesn't make sense. And so that's almost an admission that he's lying about his wisdom. You know, that somebody that wise wouldn't be confused by questions, that somebody would love questions. But, you know, maybe as, as Brenda observed, it's not loving the process. And the process is one of dialectic that Socrates is continually trying to generate. And I don't think Hippias anywhere acknowledges the benefit of dialectic because he he thinks that there's no there's no further wisdom that he has to add to himself. He has reached the perfection of wisdom. And you know, maybe he's being a caricature here, but you know, I think we know people like that who think that they are the absolute embodiment of wisdom. I think we see some maybe politicians now who who think that um, quite 
you know, humorously and, and maybe tragically too. So yeah, I, I think, you know, hopefully that addresses the question. Just, you know, to pull all of this into a modern context, and I don't know if there is any thoughts on the current situation that I mentioned in my uh, introduction about technology and GPT-3, especially in terms of understanding whether we are seeing truth or lies. You know, here, here we're reading a dialogue that was written 2,400 years ago, and, you know, the world was very different then. They didn't have chat GPT. But now that we do, and we think that, or some people think that they're wise enough to be able to program a machine, produce truthful answers to questions, which they can't predict what the questions are, you know, is there any truth in this ancient wisdom? And, you know, again, to go back to the question that uh, Cesare asked at the beginning, what's the point of this? Is this just an esoteric discussion? Are we resigned to accepting that there will be uh, a slew of untruths uh, from the speed of technology? Or is there anything we can do about this, uh, especially knowing or, or having heard what we've heard in this dialogue? So one of the things that we had talked about, we kind of mentioned this before we started recording, and I, again, I think we can also kind of plug ChatGPT as a character into this dialogue. Like ChatGPT can take the place of Hippias in this dialogue, right? Presumably, someone is using it as a resource, or it is, it is delivering information to you. Like so, it is your source of information, right? Like it is, it is the person who just gave a lecture. Well, now in order to interact with it, you, you have to interact with it in this way, right? It's a, it's a great stand-in for the sophist. The sophist is the traveling person who holds knowledge and will teach you for a fee, right? Well, Chad, Chad GPT is this holder of knowledge that will answer your question. Well, okay, that's fine. You can answer my question of is, you know, is Achilles a good guy? Like who's, who's the better hero, Achilles or Odysseus? Or, okay, well, now we have to go through and examine like it's it's knowing how you came to the conclusion you know there's theories on how do you create correct thought you know and there's there's been a number of thinkers over the years who have had theories and processes for creating correct thought and i think that that's a question that you know is also poised by you know the the idea of what chat gpt is or even pretends to be mm -hmm. Also, can if something is for something to lie, does it have to be sentient? That's a great question too. <laughs> or is it the programmers who are maybe involuntarily lying in the output, in in that they didn't program it to lie, but it did lie, and so they through the machine are involuntarily committing lies. Yeah, that's 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 fascinating, and you know, so you know, as Clay said. Does it hold knowledge? Um, well, what is knowledge? And here I, I go back to Mino 98A, which is a quote that I put on the cover page. I love this. Mino was the first dialogue of Plato's I read many years ago. And I love it. It was, a, it was short, straight to the point, but there was some really good nuggets of truth in there. And in this one, Socrates said, all knowledge is recollection. Uh, and then he went on in 98A to explain what he meant by recollection. Yeah, so he says, for true opinions, as long as they remain, are a fine thing, and all they do is good, 
but they are not willing to remain long, and they escape from a man's mind so that they are not worth much until one ties them down by an account of the reasons why. So if ChatGPT can't give us the account of the reasons why, and the account could be very long, but that's what it needs to do, right? Because the reasons why something exists now could go back 2,400 years ago. It could go back a million years ago, right? If we can't get the full account from the machine, how are we to determine if that's actually knowledge or not? I think that's an important, uh, an important point. And I love, you know, what you said, Clay, about, you know, putting chat GPT in the place of Hippias. I think, you know, to be fair to the developers of chat GPT, they acknowledge that there are some serious problems with it. Um, in fact, on OpenAI's website, it's, it warns that the machine can hallucinate. Uh, I know some some people, uh, actually, I saw one commentator last week saying we should stop using these human terms with the machine. The machine doesn't hallucinate. It just gives the wrong answers. Uh, but, uh, you know, that warning is there. Uh, so, uh, you know, to be fair, there are warnings, but uh, I can tell you there's people who are already using ChatGPT to code. GPT-4 technology that's underpinning that is being used to generate computer code. And who knows whether it's generating it properly or not. Uh, people just put in a query, generate this, and it reaches all areas of the web and somehow does what you ask it, but does it give you the account of the reasons why? No. So I think that's a, a critical point about knowledge, to know what knowledge is. And I don't think any one of us is a perfect judge of what knowledge is. Uh, and that's the benefit of dialectic, I think. And there's this other quote here too on, on the cover page from Phaedo 92b to 92c. Socrates says, imagine not being able to distinguish the real cause from that without which the real cause would not be able to act as a cause. It is what the majority appear to do, like people groping in the dark. They call it a cause, thus giving it a name that does not belong to it. And so it, that goes again to that point of the account of the reasons why. The account of the reasons why is the account of the causes. Right. So if Hippias or any other wise person can't tell you what the causes are, then are they truly wise? Are they knowledgeable? Right. Uh, or are they just kind of making stuff up or going along with convention? It was the term in the Protagoras, the tyranny of convention. And this is maybe something that we need to think about maybe in the technological development is that we don't fall into the tyranny of convention. Actually, I'm thinking back to that uh, episode that we did on the greater Hippias and I think it was the participant, Olga, who mentioned, you know, the right answer is not always just the answer that's closest at hand. Uh, and I think that's sometimes where we fall prey to these assumptions that the answer appears immediately. And because it's so quick and because it sounds good, we think that it's the right answer. Maybe it's a lie. Um, so I think we are, we're faced with some very powerful technology here very powerful technology. And, you know, it's one thing for me, you know, I've, I've lived for more than five decades. So, you know, I can, my experience tells me, or it gives me some intuition, what's truth and what's potentially a lie. But I worry about younger people who haven't had that experience or training. And how are they going to determine this good sounding output of the machine whether it's actually correct or not. Uh, they're not told why, they're just given a answer that appears to be well put together, some argument put into it. And, you know, but really it's generated by the machine being trained on probabilities. 
And do we always deal in probability? Like where does knowledge come into that account? So, so yeah, I think some very important things in this dialogue and in Sophists in general, and, and, you know, going back again to Plato's take on knowledge in the divided line from the Republic, I think that's so key because when Plato talks about knowledge, this is what he's thinking about, uh, that knowledge is not just an absolute, but it exists in this divided line. And it's it's not something that just the physical senses can reach. It's not something that just the sense of reason can reach. It's You have to put both the observation and the reason together to come out with uh, a synthesis, which is knowledge. And I think that's really the key of this, this divided line section from the Republic 509D to 511B. So any other thoughts about the relevance of, of this dialogue? Any other points that we could take away from this maybe? Kayla. Um, I know very little about chat GBT. It just is not in my world of work. Um, but I, am I hearing you say that chat GPT has an opportunity to skew knowledge with our younger people with like critical thinking? Yeah, I, I worry about that. And I think there have been some examples of outputs. I, I, the interesting thing about ChatGPT is uh, through my LinkedIn network, I've been uh, seeing people put various questions to ChatGPT and they, they'll put the question and then they'll, they get a, a response, which is tragic or funny or, or just completely out of line. And so they'll post the response. So I've been reading all of these questions and all of these responses that people have been getting from ChatGPT. And, and a lot of the responses are just simply wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they're presented in a way that sounds very convincing. You know, it, it's using properly formed sentences, um, appealing to what appear to be facts. But it's just the way that they put that it puts the facts together is wrong. It, it's not using all of the relevant facts necessarily. So, I mean, some of the some of the outputs have just been very bad, and that's why the the developer, to their credit, warns about the dangers of this machine and warns about its potential to hallucinate. So a young person who doesn't have the benefit of a lot of teaching, you know, maybe a young person in high school, for example, uh, is faced with a essay deadline tomorrow and doesn't have enough time to finish it. So turns on chat GPT and asks it to write an essay, which, you know, it's frankly, it's happening. Um, And, you know, doesn't look at the output because it sounds like it's right hands it in and, you know, first of all, doesn't get the experience of putting knowledge together themselves, but also is not using that critical skill of actually knowing the facts enough to know whether that, what they have just passed off to be their own is actually true. And I think that's the danger is that we want to take shortcuts, you know, in our busy lives. And if if the machine presents something that looks passable, yeah, well, what the heck, let's use it. And then we start down that slippery slope, you know, where we let it do all of our thinking for us. And, and you know, maybe it's just going to become a feedback loop. You know, the more we use it, the more its outputs are going to become its inputs, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's what I worry about. the opportunity to feed in on itself and reinforce errors in the algorithm. Yeah. I've worked with high schoolers. I've definitely worked in the schools. It's what I'm seeing it as is it takes this opportunity 
of what humans would do to other humans to con and scheme and manipulate, but at an expedited level. Mm-hmm. Now, regenerating someone's voice for, you know, ransom, like you were saying some, yeah. what you were saying earlier, they had voice box machines in the 70s that would yeah. do that. Yeah. So it's just taking the regular human harm, yeah. but at a more intensified, like just at a quicker, more accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of academic rigor, if those kids don't want that, then in a college setting, that's going to be impacted, right? Yeah. Like you have to be able to have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually know somebody who is currently marking uh, at a university and is marking essays and said that, you know, starting in the past few months has started to see essays that are not structured the way that that particular student would have structured the essay. And any uh, other plagiarism would show the same thing yeah, though. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, it's clearly there's, you know, the, the terminology and the, the structure used is not the student's normal terminology or structure. And then he says, you know, sometimes the student tries to insert their own thought, but their insertion is clearly different from the rest of it. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's definitely that part. And, you know, I, I've heard some commentators being concerned that chat GPT, especially in a political context, in an election context could be used to generate a complete, um, barrage of propaganda. Uh, you know, it's you already just, happening, right? Yeah. It's already happening for yeah. years and years and years. Yeah. But this, but what it does is it, it takes out the time and the cost of a human generating this barrage and the machine can generate the barrage 24/7 and the the person asking it to generate the barrage can ask it to generate a different barrage for different listeners for different recipients and mm-hmm. you know then the question of truth and lie in the whole political process uh becomes very suspect so uh, there's all of these questions that need to be answered and maybe you know maybe as as frightening as some of these prospects can be Maybe it's a good question that the the machine is now here. The warning is there because honestly, people are starting to ask, you know, really what is consciousness? What is knowledge? What is true? What is false? Um, we're seeing all sorts of fascinating questions that people are putting to the machine. All of a sudden it's causing them to think about their own thought processes, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully they can arrive at a good conclusion where you know, maybe the, the machine and the human can coexist. And I think that that may be the ideal, you know, if we can find that kind of solution where uh, the, the dangers of untruths are, there's guardrails for that and that uh, we're able to manage this technology because the machine is certainly faster and far more powerful than the human mind. Uh, it doesn't mean that the machine is smart or intelligent. I think oh, we cool. still have that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, and to to kind of piggyback on that, and I, I, again, I'm not I'm not as familiar with the source material. So when we're talking about you know kind of the epic poems, but are it is my understanding that um, the characters mentioned in the debate are characterized as such by Homer, you know, and so we are, you know, we are currently debating you know this the the Chat GPT and its you know ease and ease of spreading misinformation or outright lies um but that's that's the exact dialogue happening in in this writing is that we have this traveling merchant of knowledge 
who can quickly disseminate information, more quickly disseminate information to a large number of people and for, for a profit incentive and, you know, putting that to the task. So I think it's a kind of just an interesting thing that we can kind of see how, you know, we, Same we have, that. like we have, or have not invested in, or, you know, in like we're, we are having this conversation. We're not the only ones having this conversation. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it, but it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, this 2,400 year old conversation is something that is still relevant. Yeah. Yeah. As, as it was, I think it will always be. It's, uh, yeah. and you know, one of the interesting things too, in Plato, I think it was in the Critias, um, yeah, the, the Critias, uh, the dialogue about Atlantis, you know, the assumption that we make now is that time is linear, that um, what we know today is greater than what anybody in the past knew. So that means that time, We there's an assumption underlying, I think most people's uh, thinking about time is that it's linear, but actually Plato makes the point in the Critias that time could actually be circular um, and come back on itself. And maybe this is maybe what we face with technology is the danger of creating feedback loops. Things just start to go in circles. Um, and we need to keep, we need to keep that. If time is a circle, we need to keep the circle moving and never static so that we get stuck in time. And I think that's maybe uh, a key lesson there. And, and, you know, we, we're always going to be subject to the risk of untruths in this realm of becoming in which nothing is ever static. Everything is always moving. Uh, we can never be certain about anything because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. The more you know about the uh, speed of something, the less you know about its momentum and vice versa. That's the uncertainty principle. There's girdles and completeness theorems. Um, we can never, just, there's never no such thing as perfect knowledge. And so it's a question of how we find knowledge together. But, you know, the technology shouldn't be used to divide us. The technology could hopefully be used in a way that would bring us together, that would that would make that process of dialectic effective. Uh, and maybe, you know, in, in the way that the technology is being used in, you know, so-called social media, maybe that's not doing dialectic in an effective way. Uh, but maybe we could use the, the, the infrastructure of this technology to do something effective and actually bring people together and bring us closer to knowledge. Uh, it's just maybe a question of mindset with our technology. You know, do we, do we let this, um, do we let the motive of generating uh, profit always uh, supersede the motive of bringing us together and to find the truth in knowledge? So, so yeah, that's, uh, I don't know if anybody had any other thoughts, uh, on the dialogue itself or, you know, the relevance of it to today. It's actually been a, it's been a great discussion. You're really good. I, I think we found some very interesting points together. Certainly things that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, I really did like the, you know, the, the idea of, of putting ChatGPT in the in the place of Hippias or any of the sophists and uh, seeing how that would play out. So maybe that's something we could do as a, as an exercise sometime. So I wanted to thank everybody for being here. It's a great discussion. Um, we will resume in two weeks, uh, and we'll do we'll start with the symposium. I thought we would do the symposium in three episodes. Uh, this is the dialogue on love, but all sorts of other. 
other questions related to it. So I thought we would do it in three parts. Uh, so we would start maybe with roughly the first third, which would take us to section 189, just at the point where Aristophanes is brought into the discussion. So if we could do that next time in two weeks, and certainly anybody uh, who's been here today is welcome to join, as well as anybody else listening. Uh, it's been great to have you here, some new participants. It's it's great to see. And uh, so I look forward to uh, gathering in two weeks to start the symposium, and I will turn off the uh, recording, but invite anybody who wishes to stay online for Plato's Cafe, just a casual half hour unrecorded discussion on what we've just talked about or philosophy in general. So again, thank you for attending, and I do hope to see everybody in two weeks.